Blog Talk Radio. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me. I'm Saturdays with Joy Keys at Hotmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, questions, comments, concerns, guests you'd like to see. Uh, you know, money you want to give, <laughs> just email me. You can also check out the shows on um, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. I want to thank you guys for your support and listening and sharing with friends and family. Well, this morning, you better put your thinking caps on because I got, like, a serious writer here. I was just telling her right before – we started, I had to look, some things, I listened to like three times, like the poem. I was like, what, let me go back. Did she say, okay, that's what she said. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> she won the 2020 Yale Series of Younger Poets Prize and was a finalist for the 2021 National Book Award for Poetry. She is also the author of fiction chapbook, In Dirt or Salt Water, um, and has short stories and poems published in Best American Poetry, Best New Poets, American Short Fiction, Callaloo, the Academy of American Poets, and elsewhere. She's from Trinidad and Tobago and Queens, New York. Good morning, Desiree C. Bailey. Good morning, Joy. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you again for coming on. You really challenged me um, you know, listening, I, I listened to your poems, and then I was also reading them, because sometimes uh, audio, I wasn't into it at first, the audio book thing, but then because I've been, mm-hmm. I do so much reading, it helps me, um, but then there's certain things, like I said, I have to read them, I, I somehow, like, my brain has to see the word sometimes, um, and, and seeing your words on the page definitely made it more impactful, the combination of the audio, listening to your voice, because you were reading, and, you know, then me reading the words and seeing them somehow, like, things click. So why did you become a poet? You know, most of the times when people think they're growing up, I mean, it's like, be a doctor, be a lawyer, you know, um, something, but a poet's like, how are you going to make money? Are you going to be on the corner, like, reading your poetry, you know, getting changed? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What, mm-hmm. did, what did you know about what did you know about being a poet when you were little? Wow. Well, I love that question. What did I know about being a poet when I was little? My first instinct is to say nothing, right? Like I, I didn't know of any poets when I was younger. I didn't have access to, um, you know, people who did this. I was either like for a living or who even did this for pleasure. But actually, Mm -hmm. I think my 
entry point into poetry probably had to be with the stories that people in my family told. And so whether it was stories or they were stories about my grandmothers or about, uh, you know, the people in my family who moved from Grenada to Trinidad, who moved to other places as well, or even things of folklore, talking about, I guess if you're from the Caribbean, you might know of Sukuya or other things that maybe some people may dismiss, but that also it makes for good storytelling. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's also mm-hmm. a great way of like, of, uh, of, of sort of convincing children to behave in a way. Right, right. So, yes. I, <laughs> right, right. Um, so I think those elements of, of being immersed in a narrative, of being transported by images, by imagery, were always around me. It was in my environment. And then, of course, later on, it came to me in the form of music, in the form of soca and calypso and hip-hop, especially hip-hop, I think, um, as a teenager. Um, But it wasn't until I think I became about 19 that I, I, I saw this as something that some people did, right, and that it was something that I connected to, that it was a vehicle or that it could be a vehicle for my voice and, um, mm-hmm. and perhaps the voices of people around me. So um, it, it definitely wasn't a kind of easy falling into this, like, art and craft of poetry, I wrestled with it a lot up until recently. And so, you know, that's something we can get into as well, the wrestling with, um, you know, the the wrestling wrestling with. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, know, in the past, and and maybe now it's coming a little more full full circle, but if you think about a griot, you know, um, Mm -hmm. uh, was revered in whatever, you know, group they were in because they were the keepers of knowledge. Uh, to be yeah. able to tell the stories of the ancestors or, like, you know, friends and family. But I remember I've had several uh, people from Somalia, from Ethiopia on the show, and they had to know, like, ten generations back of mm-hmm. their family so that they could use it almost like, um, if you will say, money or exchange in case they were someplace if they could say that my father's father, father, and my cousin, this and that, was this and that, and this and that, then they could get into the store. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm being careful. Mm-hmm. But, but mm-hmm. so it's power mm-hmm. in memory. It's power in words uh, and power mm-hmm. in the story, you know, to, to, affect the, to affect the environment. So you uh, are just saying that you – we talked about it, it keeps kids in line. <laughs> You know, hip-hop is making kids, parents are like, oh, my God, that's going to make my kid go crazy, or that's not good for them. But (laughs) what did your parents think about um, the the hip-hop generation, if if I'll put that uh, out there? Were they, they were like, you can listen to this kind of music in the house, or they were like, don't bring that stuff in our house? You know, um, 
I wasn't really someone who like blasted it. I was <laughs> I was like really internal with the things that I love. So if I was listening to I don't know, rock music, like System of a Down. If I was listening to Dead Perez or The Roots or or Big Pun, like I listened to it in my room. So they didn't really, I guess, see that part. And and they were so busy too. They were working and so um, so in a way, it was like this field that I could just run wild in, which I think mm-hmm. goes back to what you were saying about, you know, there are some stories that we tell to keep people in line, and then there are some stories that we tell to, you know, to encourage people to resist, to rebel, to question, to challenge. And so for me, I think, poetry in the form of music, in the form of hip-hop or lyrics from other genres was that for me. It was like a, a, a plane where I could see myself and envision myself in different ways. Now, you have two master's degrees. You have a master's degree in fiction from Brown University, and you have a master's degree uh, in poetry from NYU. Wow. <laughs> like, where are you, is the PhD coming? Is the PhD coming? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That's a you know? great question, which I had as well. And I, you know, after some thought, I I realized that that path is not mine. And um, yeah, and I, I feel really good about that. Actually, I'm like, enough enough school. Um, but a lot of people ask me about that about the two. MFAs, right, the Master in Fine Arts. And so I I felt like I was pretty young as a writer when I did my MFA in fiction at Brown. And it was, it really opened my eyes to a lot of things in the field. And, and, you know, to write in prose and fiction um, was really expansive and I needed that. But when I got back into, you know, working and all of that, I, after a while, I felt really distant from the craft and um, from the making of poetry, and I, I really wanted to get back to that, I, and I wanted, I wanted a space where I could possibly find mentorship, because mm-hmm. I'm one of those people who find it hard to reach out just out of the blue to someone and say, hey, show me this, show me that. And um, and so that structure, like having that already in place was really helpful to me. Like here's someone, you know, whose role it is to, to do this or to be this for you. So that was really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. So talk about this uh, book of poetry, What Noise Against the Cane. Tell the audience just a little brief synopsis of, of what's going on inside yeah, Woo. <laughs> there's a lot going on inside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, which is how it felt while while um, working on it for about five years, just working slowly and and deliberately on these poems. But um, I like to think of it as being in two sections, although. Um, there's a way that you can think about it as being in three or even just being in one. But it starts with a narrative that follows 
a young woman who is enslaved in in what we now know as Haiti. And so this was uh, really before um, before Haiti won its freedom through the Haitian Revolution. So it's set at the onset of the revolution, and it follows this woman who is also enraptured by the sea and by the spirits of the sea. And so it's really thinking about questions of liberation. It's thinking about perhaps what it could take to fight for your freedom, to fight for your liberation, and what that could possibly feel like within the body and within the mind as well. And so that's, that's that first section, which is really a long poem. And then it goes into a more contemporary section, which follows my own voice for the most part. And so it was important for me to have these two parts of the book together in one, because I wanted to show the connection between these two places and time periods. And so in the second part of the book, I am I'm doing that wrestling again. I'm thinking about what it means to be of the African diaspora, to be a person who has moved around, um, who was born in Trinidad, in the Caribbean, who moved to New York, all of these layers, right, of place, of identity, layers of speaking, the joys of that, the complications of that. And then, um, and then I think weaving all of that together in the footer of the book, the bottom section that runs along the entire book is something that I somewhat affectionately call the sea voice. And it's just a line of text that's speaking in the way I imagine the sea or the ocean to speak. And that's what noise against the cane. She puts it so elegant, you know, like, oh, it's just this little blah, blah, blah. Trust me, people. It's like serious, <laughs> like so much stuff. I mean, she's talking about, you know, you're talking about the patriarchy. You're talking about being a woman. Like you say, you're talking about mm-hmm. fighting perceptions, mm-hmm. people's perceptions of you as an immigrant when you come over. One of the things I read in a, in a previous interview you did, um, that you were actually very traumatized, you said, by your, you know, immigrating from Trinidad to New York, um, uh, and, and you hadn't really processed that. Do you think this book helped you process that trauma? Uh, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and I think I'm still processing it, but I – it's important to have a way to see the thing, to see the trauma and to recognize it as such. I think because I knew so many people who were immigrants growing up, I still know a lot of people who are immigrants. And um, I think the state of immigration was something that was all around me. I think I just felt like you just kind of, you just move on with all of these feelings that you have, right? And if Mm -hmm. perhaps you moved as a child, then you think that there is this time limit on on the trauma of that uprooting, right? Or some people actually think it's about any kind of trauma. 
and then you realize that it comes back to you that certain things that um, that are either important to you or that may affect you could possibly be linked to that. And so I, I really had to take a step back while working through or working on this book and to to really grapple with that, to hold space for it, and to be gentle with myself, to say that, you know, like, to tell myself that you should just get over this, <laughs> just what I'm done, is not okay. And I wouldn't actually say that to anyone else. And so that I need to give myself that grace and that time and to understand that if, if that cycles back, that it's okay. It's really a part of the way that the body remembers. Yeah, I've had other um, poets, you know, from Haiti come on um, from the islands, you know, Edgewood Stanticat was on, uh, Miriam Chancy was on, Miriam and I were talking about the, one of her characters and that uh, how immigrants are dealing with trauma, uh, unfortunately, sometimes through, like, getting into drinking, uh, you know, partying, mm. kind of things to, like, numb the feelings of, I guess, what's, um, what is happening to them. Um, and do you see that around you with other immigrants that you've met maybe coming over more recently? Are they dealing with mm. it in that way? Or do they find other ways, like going to church or being around friends and family? Mm. Yeah, I mean... It's hard to say, right, um, because I, I, I do think that people deal with it in, in the ways that are available to them. And so perhaps it, it may manifest in that. Um, but I, one way that I've seen people deal with that, that I think is actually the most common, is by really leaning into this idea of the American dream. And um, by... <laughs> by giving so much of themselves to that and oftentimes in the form of work. And so I, mm. what I have seen really is constant overwork, right? And this constant yes. like trying to prove yourself, trying to prove that you are worthy of being in this country while at the same time making sense of what being in a new place that, you know, like, let's be real, is at the heart of empire, what that actually does to you, what that does to your relationships, um, both with people here, with people back home, what that does to your sense of community. Maybe it brings you together, but maybe it causes you to distrust people as well. Maybe it requires you to align yourself with ideas or ideals, um, especially ideas that, that may push other people like you away, um, and ideas that maybe you didn't agree with before. So it's, it's really a lot to take in. But I think this kind of immigrant work ethic is something that I'm unlearning, really. And I know my mother, who recently retired, um, it's something that we talk about, actually, you know, because we kind of have to remind each other, like, all right, <laughs> relax. Whereas a few years ago, it was a different kind of conversation. It was just, 
Mm. I think there was this understanding that we had to produce, to be productive, to show and prove our worth, which we know now, I think more people are thinking about this, that that is incredibly destructive, right? There are benefits to, of course, having things, having material and, and having security, but we know that there's a cost to that that can really destroy who we are. I mean, it definitely is something that I've seen from other immigrants from Africa, from the continent, um, not just from the islands, um, and that they, and sometimes they feel that we as African Americans may be lazy. That's something that I've I've heard mm. from different immigrants um, in comparison to them, and I, I'm bunching people mm. together, but I know that's not everybody's thought. So, um, you know, it's, right. it's understandable that it is not good. It, there, there has to be some balance. You have to produce, to live, um, to take care of your family, but then there has to be some fun, you know, moments in life. There has to be some joy, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. in life. Uh, one of the things you have in there is uh, what they call ekphrastic poems. And uh, I love Black Orchids because I saw that movie when I was a kid. And to this day, to this day, I can visualize scenes from that movie. And I'm 52. Like, it's crazy. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's how impactful it was to me. Um, And and then you also have the the other poem dealing uh, with the Holy Virgin Mary uh, uh, picture of Chris O'Feel. And that was like a... That I actually looked that up because I didn't know what, you know, I was like, okay, let me, what, what is she talking about? And I was like, really? This caused, like, the, somebody desecrated mm-hmm. his photo with white paint, and they were so, like, horrified. And I'm looking at this poem, like, to me, the poem, I mean, the, the picture was joyful. The picture was vibrant. Mm-hmm. The picture mm-hmm. was soft. To me, I saw oceans, uh, the, the, the mermaid. Uh, I, I just was like, what? Talk to me, mm-hmm. you know, talk to the audience about your, um, the, the poem uh, that you wrote about the Holy Virgin Mary uh, for uh, our picture. Sorry. Uh-huh. Right. So that poem, so there's a poem called The First American Years, and, and it really was actually one of the last poems that I wrote for the book because I felt like I, I, needed to, I needed to go back. And we talked about processing those early years. Um, so I needed to do that. And, and so in that poem, I sort of go through a lot of the markers from a lot of the visual and sonic markers from that time when I first moved to America. So thinking about, about the death of, of Biggie, of um, thinking about the police brutality that I saw on TV in New York, right? And this was really mm-hmm. new for me coming from Trinidad to see this kind of thing on the news, this kind of constant stream of black people being killed or abused by the NYPD, right? And so all of that was really confusing. One of the things that I also saw on TV was uh, the mayor at the time, Mayor Giuliani, um, who really 
was enraged by this painting by Chris Ophelia called The Holy Virgin Mary. And his reasoning for being enraged about that was because he said that, that the, the painting, um, it's not just a painting, actually, it's like a mixed media piece that it incorporated elephant dung into the piece. And therefore, yeah. um, it's a desecration of the Virgin Mary. So he turned it into a kind of religious <laughs> tirade, I guess, um, saying that it's disrespectful to Catholics and, and whatnot. But I think we all, I don't know, I mean, I was young, but I think what people are pointing out was that there were dog whistles within that, right? So he was saying this one thing, but um, what he really seemed to be talking about and what we all felt was that there was this kind of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, this, this anger about a depiction of the Virgin Mary that, that appeared to be black, right, showing a dark that's skin what, woman. Yes. And so, exactly. yeah, so if you look at mm-hmm. the piece, that's the first yeah, thing yeah. that you see. Um, and if you were to really consider the piece and all the materials in it, you would you would see that there are a lot of this glitter, there are other things used in there, and that the artist had a specific reason for using really a, a small amount of elephant dung in in the actual work, which I believe he used it as a kind of reverence for the the subject of of the piece um and and i think that sense of reverence stems from various cultures where he saw that employed so it was just something that stood out to me when i moved here because it it was just like it was a big deal i don't know if i'm really conveying that but well, I would, I, would mm-hmm. I would suggest that people look up this picture, okay? It's Chris Ophelia's mm-hmm. picture, the Holy Virgin Mary, and you just look at it. And just take a moment to look at it. Try to forget, of course, what we've just been saying um, and, and make your own opinion. But, you know, if you think about, um, I thought about her being carried through the desert on the back of an elephant. With, with the dumb. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, you know, um, mm-hmm. this, this, um, th- that's, what I, that's what came to my mind, actually. You know what I mean? Right, but, right. Uh, anyway, and, back to and your, that's your thing, book. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like if we, if we ban, you know, because we are in a moment where we're, where unfortunately we're dealing with this kind of thing again, the banning of, of artworks, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and I think if we do that, we really close off the possibilities that are available to people, right? So you saw this painting, and, and you made a connection with a particular story, right, of the Virgin Mary. And so it's really terrifying to think of a world or a, a, a society that really you know, where that kind of closing off of the mind and of these connections and of learning about our histories and our present is something that's discouraged and even banned, right? And I think that's something that we should resist. I totally agree with you. And unfortunately, I can't talk to you for another hour, but I would love to. But, I mean, <laughs> yes, and that's why... 
you know, I'm going to give away some copies of your book, What Noise Against the Cane. Um, so I encourage people to follow me on Twitter at Joy Keith. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keith, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keith. Again, I'm going to give away some copies of What Noise Against the Cane by Desiree C. Bailey, a poet, Desiree C. Bailey. Desiree, thank you so much for sharing all your stories and your comments with us this morning. I really wish you much success, and I can't wait for for the next book. All right. Thank you so much, Joy, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All right. Uh, And I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Again, you can check out the shows on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, uh, here at Blog Talk Radio, Google, anytime. If you've missed a show or you want to share something with somebody and tell them about it, just look up Saturday morning with Joy Keys. Stay tuned. I'm going to be speaking with actor William Stanford Davis, yes, from uh, Abbott Elementary. So stay tuned. Wonder if you should get tested for colorectal cancer? Well, it's the second leading cancer killer in the U.S., so if you're 50 or older, it's time. Screening helps find precancerous polyps so they can be removed. Remove the polyp, prevent the cancer. Did you know there's more than one screening test? Talk to your doctor to find the one that's right for you. No more excuses, because colorectal cancer screening really does save lives. A message from HHS and CDC's Screen for Life campaign.